0: is not being televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village.
1: On 90.7 FM KPFK. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. On Digital Village, we're bringing you stories about the internet and technology and how they're shaping culture and changing every aspect of our lives. How it's glorious and awe-inspiring, but can also have a dark side and maybe how we can prevent some of its abuses. On this week's episode of Digital Village, I'm joined by Gemma Milne to talk about her book, Smoke and Mirrors, how hype obscures the future and how to see past it.
2: I think about hype very much as not necessarily a good or bad thing, but can be used to do Depending on how you feel about the world, good or bad things. (laughs) And I call the book Smoke and Mirrors because I think about it through the lens of magic. So you go to a magic show, you are being consensually fooled. You are consenting for the magician to try and trick you. When someone lies to you, that's non consensual fooling. Whereas with hype, it's accidental fooling, where a message is being put across to capture attention, grab publicity. And sometimes because maybe there's a lack of context or it's oversimplified or People who have read it don't understand the stuff around it. They are accidentally fooled into believing the wrong thing.
1: More with Gemma Milne in the second half of the show. But first, I'm joined by the Bipartisan Policy Center's Dr. Addison Colleen Stark to talk about an important concept in innovation, failure, and what we can learn from it.
0: So Brittany, some of your listeners may have read recently that a solar power installation, the Crescent Dunes solar project in Nevada recently filed for bankruptcy. It's an interesting project and it's worth talking a bit about these projects and large failures and in particular what they mean about innovation to develop new technology. So the Crescent Dunes project is an example of a concentrated solar power plant. So a CSP plant. And when it was built a decade ago, It was not clear whether that technology or photovoltaics would take over and really offer a low-cost option for the development of solar power at the utility scale.
1: What is the difference between concentrated solar power and photovoltaics?
0: The difference between CSP and PV is that CSP is collecting solar power and concentrating it on a certain spot to use the heat of solar radiation coming in to heat up a working fluid and then to drive a traditional steam turbine or a steam Rankine cycle to generate electricity like is done in coal power plants or nuclear power plants. And one benefit of that is it would have the power production characteristics that are similar to power plants on the grid today. So it would offer things like rotational inertia And it would just act much more like a power plant. Whereas photovoltaics, PV, requires a lot of electronics to be able to take what is a direct current electricity source and make it into an alternating current source through inverters and other electronics that make it look more like something on the grid. But it lacks certain characteristics like inertia, which for grid planners are critically important in thinking about how the grid adjusts to change in demand. So anyway, this power plant at the time, during the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act of 2009, during the Great Recession, the U.S. Department of Energy invested in the demonstration of new technologies through the Loan Programs Office. And they invested in large-scale solar projects, both PV and CSP. Ten years later, we look and we see that solar PV is being built across the country, that actually PV, through these demonstration projects, has been proven as a financially successful and investable technology that is now today the cheapest form of electric generation that can be built on the grid and is now often chosen by utilities over natural gas or coal and has led towards the increased growth of renewables along with wind. CSP, on the other hand, we found out has certain challenges through these investments. And this project has needed to file for bankruptcy because it is not financially viable and some people have looked at this and said that it's a failure on behalf of the Obama DOE. However, it was all part of the loan program that still has returned more money to the taxpayer from that was lent and has driven to, as we've seen in PV, the success of the expansion of utility-scale solar. The challenge here is the fact that it's just very expensive and capital-intensive to build these power plants. Whereas with solar PV, we were able to manufacture them and ship them anywhere in a much more modular sense. CSP has lacked that modularity and therefore was unable to experience the cost reductions that manufacturing at volume has really enabled in the cost reductions of PV.
1: What have we learned from this failure?
0: So I would say that we've learned a lot from this failure, actually, This power plant shows that while we may not generate electricity from concentrated solar, it has further developed the technology around handling very hot temperature heat. So we have a much better understanding of molten salts, for example. And molten salts are being used today in storage ideas like malta, which is a large-scale storage technology that was spun out of Google X, looking to be able to use similar technology that was developed for solar thermal to store electricity on the grid for much longer duration and at cheaper costs. So perhaps a lot of the learnings that we've gotten from this project will be used in other applications, but we're realizing and have confirmation from this demonstration experiment that CSP is probably not going to be used for electricity generation in the U.S.
1: So what happens to Crescent Dunes now?
0: Well, what's interesting actually about that is this power plant will still likely be used. They are looking for a write-off and bankruptcy and to have somebody else take over the ownership of this power plant to continue to manage and dispatch it. But I think that the sign is that it was too expensive to entice further investment in building next generation plants. And so this bankruptcy will probably disincentivize anyone else from wanting to build a CSP plant elsewhere in the U.S
1: out here we have Ivanpah, another CSP. It's on the way to Las Vegas. And from the air, when you fly over it, really makes me think of this artistic monument and how it reflects the sun back at you. It's an example in some ways of how technology really can be a lot like art.
0: We should look at this failure as potentially a monument to failure, which we need to expect in our attempt to innovate and develop the new technologies we need to decarbonize by mid-century. If we don't have monuments to failure like this across the country built in the next decade, then we aren't taking enough risks. We are not pushing the envelope enough to develop the new technologies we need. So in a lot of ways, I agree, it can be looked at as art, but also it's a monument to innovation and to failure, and failure is part of a healthy innovation ecosystem.
1: That was Dr. Addison Colleen Stark on the recent bankruptcy filing of the CSP plant, Crescent Dunes, and how we need more monuments to failure if we're going to successfully tackle climate change. Let's remind everyone that you're listening to Digital Village here on Fearless Radio, 90.7 FM, KPFK, Los Angeles.
2: Digital Village has been bringing you the cyber news stories and in-depth
0: interviews you won't hear anywhere else to help you navigate the latest in digital technology.
1: Including the information needed to help you guarantee fair voting, keep the internet neutral, and protect yourself online. Please take the important step of giving a gift to help KPFK continue to bring you not only information, news, and culture, but also the sense of joy, relief, and community you've come to expect from us. You can donate right now to keep this glorious independent. Listener sponsored radio flourishing
2: by going to kpfk.org forward slash pledge. Thanks
1: Thanks again. again. Hype plays a big role in science and tech coverage, and not always for the good. Up next, I'm joined by author Gemma Milne to talk about her book, Smoke and Mirrors. We discuss some examples of it, how to see past it, but first, How do we define hype? It really seems like there's lots of different definitions of it.
2: There's actually quite a lot of ways of defining hype. This was one of the things I thought would be really easy in the book, but actually, when I started speaking to people about it and reading about it, I realized everyone talks about it in slightly different ways. But the way I'm thinking about it in the book is essentially a tool for publicity, exaggerated publicity, perhaps. I think about hype very much as not necessarily a good or bad thing, but can be used to do, depending on how you feel about the world, good or bad things. <laughs> and I called the book Smoke and Mirrors because I think about it through the lens of magic so you go to a magic show you are being consensually fooled you are consenting for the magician to try and trick you when someone lies to you that's non-consensual fooling whereas with hype it's accidental fooling where a message is being put across to capture attention grab publicity and sometimes because maybe there's a lack of context or it's oversimplified or people who have read it don't understand the stuff around it they are accidentally fooled into believing the wrong thing. So it's a tool for sometimes accidental filling.
1: In a lot of ways, hype makes me think about branding. I work in software and there's a lot of variations of this theme where sales and marketing are selling a lion and what we think we're building was a beautiful cat, but we actually deliver is a cat drawn by a six-year-old. And I think a lot of hype, Is like that, and I know you have a background in marketing as well. Did you think about hype in terms of branding?
2: Definitely. As I say, it's when I say a tool for sometimes accidental fooling and for publicity, it's a tool for capturing attention, which is basically what marketing is. That's the whole point of the industry of advertising. And yeah, I, as you mentioned, I used to work in advertising. I worked for Ogilvy, and I was working in a job where I was on behalf of a client doing projects. But then my second job at Ogilvy was in corporate innovation, and part of my job was understanding the world of tech. But the half of that job was trying to make clients look good through their realm of innovation and a lot of innovation and corporate innovation out there really is smoke and mirrors it really is talking about innovation as opposed to doing it so a lot of the book was birthed (laughs) out of both my background experience but also my frustration around how technology and science is used by corporates to make them look good (laughs) and make them sound more flashy than they are and science and technology is a really great place for that because a lot of people don't understand it and are wowed by it and do think it's amazing because it is in many different ways, but it is really, really, as working in software, full of people trying to capture attention, explain difficult things to you and ultimately get your money, your vote or your consumerism off the back of it.
1: One of the very recent examples of hype is around COVID-19 and vaccine development. And with regards to COVID, in a lot of ways, we're watching the scientific method unfold around us, where we're trying to get information as fast as possible, but also maybe at a detriment. Could you speak to that? COVID is,
2: uh, I launched this book in the middle of the pandemic. I've been thinking a lot about the role that hype has played and hasn't played in some instances in throughout the, the last six months, particularly. And I'm obviously looking at this more from a UK context. I'm based here in London. There's a few things. First of all, when I say hype is a tool, it can be used for good sometimes too, right? Hype is used to capture attention, get people on board with an idea, regardless of whether the idea is right or wrong. But it's about capturing attention, getting ideas across, simple ideas. And in some ways, hype as a tool I think actually wasn't utilised very well and could have been used to get people on board, get understanding around big public health messages out there in a more efficient way. This was a time where we needed everybody to be on board, to comply, to work together. So in some sense, I think the conflicted, confused, complex messages that a lot of governments put out, and particularly the UK government put out very vague messages a lot of the time, they could have used the the tool that is hype to, to try and get things across clearer and get people feeling a little bit better and more comfortable with what was going on. Peer review, the preprints, that's a um, really interesting example that I've been thinking a lot about, where there was a particular example here in the UK where a preprint came out, the Financial Times covered it didn't make it clear there was big issues in this paper, and they obviously didn't understand it. The reporter clearly didn't understand it and was rushed to publish. And then a couple of days later, a whole load of experts came out and said, There's lots of issues with this paper, it's not true. And I can't remember exactly what it was about now, the example, but I think it was something to do with how many people had been infected at that point in the UK. And so the second, you know, rebuttal a couple of days later was then published in, in the Financial Times. But by that point, the original piece had already caused a lot of fear and policy change and whatnot. But then what happened after that, there was then a whole discourse around why preprints were terrible, and we shouldn't ever trust them, and they shouldn't ever be um, commented on by the papers, and so on and so forth. And this complete lack of understanding of how science is done, what peer review actually is, papers, even if they're published by the most amazing journals and peer reviewed by tons of people, can sometimes still be wrong. And it's like a lack of understanding of what it means to do science. And so hype played a role here in exacerbating a lack of science literacy, particularly here in the UK. And the final, I think I'll say, which I think is where I, I was talking about where science and technology is used because it's exciting and hypey and people have this level of trust in it to some degree. One of the big phrases that's being used a lot here in the UK is follow the science. And it's been used by the politicians, the, the UK government, and they've been justifying different things that they've done that have been incorrect. And later on, they say, oh, well, we followed the science science or we are following the science and using it as a I don't want to say a scapegoat but using it as an excuse for for political decisions when realistically <laughs> that, that wasn't really what was done And a lot of times, science doesn't necessarily give you a direct path and a direct answer. That's not what it is. But they they use this phrase because it gives this level of trust. Oh, this wasn't a political decision. This wasn't anything to do with whether or not we like the economy versus human lives. It was, oh no, we we followed the scientists. So there's lots of different examples of how hype has been used or not used or abused throughout the last six months. And really, I'm an author trying to launch a book and get ideas out there about hype. And fortunately, unfortunately, the examples over the last six months have been it's a microcosm for everything I'm trying to say in the book it has been played through in many, many different ways throughout the pandemic.
1: One of the examples that you mentioned in the book is quantum computers. And quantum computing is different than classical computing that we use today because it uses certain phenomena from quantum mechanics such as superposition and entanglement to perform operations on the data rather than the classical zeros and ones. And of course, this is a oversimplified definition of quantum computing. Quantum computers are a very interesting situation where there's so much hype and almost so much anti-hype. Could you talk about quantum computers as an example of hype? Sure. So, one of the things I, I talk
2: about in that in that chapter is this idea of the the shortcut to understanding, and we need shortcuts to understand complex topics. And quantum computing, if you really want to get into the weeds of it, is is a complex topic, right? There's that famous phrase: "Is if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you you don't understand it." Sort of thing, or you haven't understood it yet. And I think it's important that we find ways to simplify things, to use analogies, metaphors, all that thing. But one of the things that's happened within the quantum computing, not just the research field, but then the industry that's now coming out of it, is this use of this measure, which is the number of qubits. And for a while in the press, it became like a race. Like, how many qubits have they got? How many have they done? Oh, Google's it. 25 and IBM's at 30, or whatever it was. And D Wave very sneakily managed to capture attention through releasing these press releases. We've done however many hundreds, qubits, a thousand qubits. And um, they essentially managed to. Get around the fact that what they were doing was not comparable, it was a completely different, it wasn't really a qubit, a it was just something called a quantum annealer that they were using. It's still a useful device, arguably, some people would argue not that what they're building, but they managed to capture attention by playing into this oversimplified measure that people like to follow as, as a race, shall we say. And, and we still are talking about that. We're now talking about the, the race to quantum supremacy, which company can do it first. Though so because it's such a complex topic, there's always this need to try find these simplified measures of the industry in terms of who's doing it best, which ones are worth following, and so on and so forth. But that can obviously get you in the trap of misunderstanding. The other side of quantum computing that I think is interesting is there's a sort of placebo thing going on in the way that we talk about quantum computing. And what I by that is quantum computing as a field needed interest and excitement in order to get Funding. And in every area of science and tech, particularly when it's still in the science phase, needs this. It needs people to understand why it's really important without having to go into tons of depth, right? It needs the funding agencies to get behind it. It needs companies to come in and start funding research and all this things. Quantum computing and the field of quantum computing used hype to get people excited. This is what it could do. This is what a quantum computer is oversimplified, but this is what the, the power of quantum computing. And then what happened is in the same way with the AI hype cycle that's happened many times um, sort of in the 19, 1970s up till now, they have this growth of interest from the outside world, shall we say, from people that maybe don't, understand it quite so well, and their expectations get very, very high. So more and more money gets funneled in, VCs start getting excited, corporate innovation teams get excited, people start buying things, funding research teams, all this thing. And then realize that there's still tons of development required in order to get to what they were promised. And I think that the stage we're at in quantum computing, not for everyone, because there's a lot of brilliant people, both from the research space and the corporate space, working in quantum computing. But in terms of the way we talk about it, I'm worried that we're going to end up going into a quantum computing winter in the same way that AI has, you know, they've had what, three winters. I think we're in the AI summer now. Yeah. I don't know. I'm worried that there's a little bit too much excitement about quantum computing and we're still really far off, if we ever get there, from having a fully functioning, error-free, full-scale quantum-disabled computer do all the things that the futurism.com and the techcrunch.com articles would lead you to believe. And so VCs work on a model of needing a return quickly. Corporates need to be able to find profit somehow. So they need to be able to get a return on this investment. And that's when you start to see these winters, when you realize they're not, they're not going to get there. The chapter that I did on quantum computing, the, the subtitle of it is The Quiet Winner um, in quantum computing. And I think where you have this placebo effect is you're putting quite a lot of money into this not really knowing whether or not it's going to work and tricking people to some degree saying that it's working and what is happening instead of actually getting the effect of corporates getting their machine that's going to give them tons of money or whatever the basic scientists the people who are doing fundamental research that want and need Con's computers to eventually come into fruition so they can continue to do basic fundamental research you can't necessarily monetize it are getting the funding that they need to keep doing what they're doing now you could say Is tricking people into something positive a good thing? Well, it's the same discussion we have around placebos. Is it good to give someone a sugar pill and tell them they're getting a drug, but then they feel better as a result? And it's the same discussion around D-Wave, right? They captured everyone's attention. They got tons of investment after all their press releases early on before they were called out for doing quantum annealing instead of qubits. But with that funding... They have advanced their machines and they have created more innovation. And again, arguably, they have created stuff that people find useful. Would they have been able to do that without tricking people in the first place? Arguably not. There's an interesting discussion here around hype as a placebo and hype as a creation mechanism of innovation in the future by tricking people in the present to believing that it's a real thing. That's all the themes around quantum computing that I think are really interesting and where hype plays this strange and intriguing role within that world.
1: Yeah, because as you said in the beginning, too, hype is important to get the research dollars into funding... Something like this, because as you also said, VCs want this short turnaround of their money. And so I think it's interesting in a lot of these industries where there is this massive hype trade, because it's needed to get the money. And then as you said, going into this winter, and like we've seen with AI, I, I do think AI might be out of its wintertime phase. Um
2: Yeah, but it could so easily go into another AI, such a huge, huge field. And also, I think a lot of these technologies are are not necessarily just one piece of tech, they become, I I hate the term, but like platforms for so many other things. And you can make promises on all those things, you can have almost segmented mini winters within a a bigger topic. But I think talking about VCs and the business model of science and technology, that was really important to me to get into smoke and mirrors, not just in terms of talking about hype and expectations around funding models, which I, I do have for the book, uh, explanations of that. But really, I also wanted to hammer home the point that a lot of people think about science, particularly science, not so much tech, but science as this thing that happens in a lab that's separate from products and companies and businesses. Pharma, people maybe understand that as a link between the two. But most of the time this idea is, is a scientist is this good, holier than thou ivory terrorist person that does research and they do it because they think it's really interesting and it's a quest for knowledge and, and that's that. And of course there are scientists that that do act like that. But there, there's a lot of stuff that happens between the lab and Stuff on the market or changes to policy or new drugs or whatever. And that process, which involves investment and regulation and policy making and business model creation, politics and trade and supply chains and all these sorts of things, realistically, you can't fully understand science and tech unless you really try and unpick that journey from science to tech, to business, to government, to society. And I I really wanted to bring that out in every one of the chapters and not just tell the story of the science and what people were saying in terms of headlines or whatever, but to really go, okay, let me explain why this hype It's not just that it doesn't make sense from a science perspective. It doesn't make sense actually because factories aren't capable of doing this or because there's not enough regulation around this. It's not because the science isn't there. The reason we don't have flying cars is not because we can't physically make them a science. We, We absolutely can. It's probably most likely because of politics or regulation, or it's not tantalizing enough as a business opportunity, right? There's other reasons why things are not as they seem. And that was really important to me to try and give people the confidence and I don't know, a little bit of empowerment to look at science and tech, not just through the do you have a degree in physics, but rather, what does the business of this look like? Or what does the policy of this look like? That's really how you get understanding of the space.
1: Yeah, that was one of the things I really enjoyed about the book. I also enjoyed your thoughts on how to see past type. Could you speak to that? sure so in terms of
2: honing your critical thinking and finding ways to see past hype in the conclusion of the book i give a list of 10 things that you could do around thinking and asking questions and so on and so forth and it's small things like thinking who wrote this and what's the context by which this idea came into the world or who might benefit from people believing this or um is your own fandom of this science and tech getting in the way of your understanding right questions like this but the 10th of advice that i give is to not follow my list of the preceding nine questions (laughs) because critical thinking is really genuinely and it sounds a bit pithy for me to say it but it's about thinking for yourself and giving yourself the permission to ask the questions that maybe you think are a bit daft but they're not. If you have that question it's clearly something other people have too Um, and it's not being clearly answered by the thing that you're reading in front of you. So let yourself ask basic questions like what does this thing that I've just read depend on? What does this headline depend on? If it says robots are going to steal our jobs well okay what does that depend on? It depends on the job or what year we're talking about what kind of robots or which country we're in or all these sorts of things ask those basic questions ask who wrote it why they wrote it which publication it's in yeah who benefits from, from belief but really it's about allowing yourself to dive in and embrace complexity around topics and not just take things at face value
1: That was Gemma Milne, the author of Smoke and Mirrors, How Hype Obscures the Future and How to See Past It. I definitely think what Gemma's saying is something that we cover a lot on this show is do your research and really question everything. Stateside, you can get a digital or audio copy of her book, Smoke and Mirrors. You can also find her on Twitter at Gemma Milne. That's G-E-M-M-A-M-I-L-N-E. I'm Brittany Gallagher at Na Quantum World. You can hear all our episodes by subscribing to our podcast or going to kpfk.org. Click audio archives and search for Digital Village. You can also follow us on all things social using at Digital V Radio or find us at digitalvillage.org. A special thank you to our regular guest, Dr. Addison Colleen Stark. And Digital Village and KPFK relies on you, our listeners. Uh, You can pledge your support to KPFK online at kpfk.org forward slash pledge and follow the links there.
0: Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen.
1: And I'm Brittany Gallagher.
0: And we'll see you online.